Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Here in this episode, we are continuing our series in the book of Colossians, and here the guys will be continuing their discussion of Colossians chapter 3. Theopolis has several events coming up that we wanted to make you aware of. Coming up May 16th through 20th here in Birmingham, we have a course on a theology of history. That course will be with Peter Lightheart and Rich Bledsoe with special guest James Jordan. Our Theopolitan Ministry Conference, which is the continuation of the older BH conferences, is going to be held on July 18th and 19th here in Birmingham. And the topic this year is a vision of victory. For information about those events, registration, and also some more upcoming events, there are links down there in the show notes. We really hope that you enjoy this conversation over this passage, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Colossians chapter 3. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John and Alistair Roberts. Jeff Myers, one of our uh, usual member of the team, is uh, away today attending to family business. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background recording everything and making sure everything is prepared and ready to go. We're in the middle of a series of studies in Paul's letter to Colossians. And in the last episode, we started chapter three, a little bit more than halfway through the book. As Alistair pointed out in the last episode, what Paul is dealing with throughout uh, chapters two and three kind of turns on questions of life and death, what we have died to and what we are alive to. Uh, We're dead and buried to the old world. We're dead and buried to the flesh. We're dead and buried to the elemental things of the earth. But we've been raised with Christ, and we're to keep seeking things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We're dead to the old world. We're alive and anew. And that proclamation about us is the basis for Paul's exhortation. So as we saw in the last episode, Paul says that we're dead. We died with Christ, and our life is now hid with Christ in God. Therefore, we are to put to death the members of our earthly body, the body that's fleshly, the body that's attached to the old Adam, and all the vices that that produces, whether the vices of evil desire in chapter chapter 3, verse 5, vices of anger and malice in chapter 3, verse 7. We're supposed to put those to death and uh, kill the old self. We're supposed to take relentless action against the old self and all of its practices. And there's a positive side to that, of course. We're not only dying to an old self, but we're being raised to a new. And Paul begins to talk about that around verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3. We're to lay aside the old man and begin to put on a new man. He uses imagery of clothing change. We take off the old clothes that once identified us, the old clothes that we once wore, and put on a new self. Uh, He talks about it in terms of old man and new man, Adam is to be put off. And all of this is part of the ultimate aim that God has in restoring us in sending Jesus, the creator, to initiate a new creation, a, a, a renewal of creation. The goal of this putting off and putting on is to put off the old man so that we can be conformed to the image of the new man and thereby become truly human, fully human, maturely human, as the images of the one who created us. That's what Paul says in verse 10. So uh, we're, in a, we're in the section of the book where he's uh, talking about, he's still talking a bit about the vices that were to lay aside and to kill, but he's beginning in verses 9 or 10 of chapter 3 to talk about the, the virtues, the fruits, 
to use the language of uh, Galatians, the fruits of the spirit that we're supposed to produce. Quick comment on this idea of putting on and putting off. I think that as we think about this kind of language and its connection with clothing, I feel like it's important for us to not think of clothes as just accessories, which are quite quite detached from ourselves, from us and from who we are. You know, I could think to myself, well, I can take my clothes off and put a new set of clothes on, but I'm basically the same person, you know. And yet the idea of, of clothing, it seems to me that in, well, in many circles, but particularly in the Old Testament, it is more fundamentally um, connected with our identity and who we are than that, than, than that sort of casual idea that I, I just explained a while ago. You know, if, if you are a priest, you will have certain um, things, uh, certain clothes and garments, um, and, okay, you do put them on, but they're, they're, uh, they represent who you are. Or if you're a, a king, you, you might um, have that. You know, Daniel is, is given the um, uh, privilege of wearing purple. You, you can just do that naturally as a citizen you know it's something that's that's granted to you and then we have for for instance the act of tearing your clothing to express um grief and that that is the idea that you know this thing has affected me so deeply that it's it's cut uh, and and affected my, my my very being and and disturbed sort of who i am you know and sort of tearing a garment is almost saying you know what is my status as a king or something that matter now that I've lost um, whatever a, a loved one and I think that with um, this imagery of putting on and, and putting off I think it's very important to bear that in mind this isn't just a, a, a sort of change of clothes so we look different but are the same um, within it's something deeper than that yeah very good point I, I do think that there's the the priestly aspect of this is uh, part of the implied background. And I don't know that I've highlighted it as we've gone through the first couple of chapters, but I, uh, as I was reading and looking over this, these texts, it, it seemed like there were occasional references to the priestly garments and the priestly ordination rite. The fact that we're fulfilled and brought to completion, you've been made complete in 2 verse 10. Uh, that's talking about bringing to maturity. It's talking about bringing us to our telos as human beings, but the language of completion or fulfilling or filling is uh, connected in the Old Testament with the priestly ordination rite, which is the rite of filling of the hand. And there are a couple other places, I, I don't have them at the top of my mind right now, but there are a couple other places in the first two chapters where there seem to be these hints about the believers now participating in the priesthood of Christ and them, them becoming priests. So put, putting off the old and putting on the new means that we're being fulfilled as kings and priests to God. In union with Christ, we share in his offices uh, and yeah, I think James, you're exactly right. That that's not just a superficial, external kind of change, but it, it's a change in who we are and and the the kind of life that we live. Alistair made the point last time um, about these lists and the way in which they seem to uh, be intended to capture a flow and the way in which one thing follows on from another. And I think that's absolutely right. And one of the things that, or one of the ways that's made clear, is just the fact that it's often very hard to disambiguate between or to distinguish really between uh, different items of them. You know, if I sit down and think about in verse eight, well, what exactly is the difference between um, anger and, and wrath or, or later in verse 
12 what's the difference between humility and, and meekness you know that that might not be the most profit profitable way to analyze them rather they might be capturing this this flow and the way in which anger is this root sin and then leads to um other things and all these things in verse eight seem to be very um interpersonal like ways in which we badly affect and hurt one another um with anger with malice you know with with slandering one another um do not lie one to another these seem to be uh ways in which a body can really self-destruct uh and the sort of thing that you often kind of see on social media sadly and so that kind of a body self-destructing and and slandering itself and um that just seems to be something that paul wants to to really root out of the church um altogether that that tendency to uh yeah to self-destruct that emphasis upon sins of the mouth in um verse eight um after the sins of lust and greed in verse five is an interesting shift and as we go through the old testament particularly within the wisdom literature we see the sins of the mouth being singled out as especially revelatory of the character of the person the fool is the person whose lips just spew forth whereas the wise person weighs words and truths in the heart before they utter anything and as we're going through this list here we can also think of the relation between it and the list that we have in Ephesians, which tend to gravitate to the same themes. So there's the sexual immorality at various points, and then also this emphasis upon sins and virtues of speech. We're going to be defined by a new form of speech to each other, and that's going to put away the old form of talk, the slander, the the anger in speech, the obscene speech that formerly occupied us. And that particular focus, the fact that this is not just something Paul's doing on this particular occasion, but this is a more typical cluster of vices that he focuses upon, I think is illuminating. And it's helpful to reflect upon, as you're saying, the sort of chain, the way that these things are connected together and they overlap. And there's a sense of giving uh, um, some description of a terrain of human vice in which we once operated and now how we need to move beyond that and away from that and into a, a field of human virtue that takes its place. Yeah, the, the, uh, the, the starkness of the, the list of uh, impure sexual desires is uh, notable within the context of the ancient world. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, uh, Kyle Harper's recent book, uh, From Shame to Sin, uh, where he he's uh, critiquing uh, a, a what's become a, a almost a consensus among ancient historians that the that the development of Christianity had very little effect on the uh, you know, normal life of people. And uh, Harper is arguing, on the contrary, that this is a there's a revolutionary shift within sexual morality that comes because of Christianity. It's a new way of thinking about sexuality. It's a new way of men and women relating to each other. Part of that is a new honor and respect for women, but there's this entirely new paradigm of sexuality that's come in that is distinctive to the church. So one of the things that makes the church stand out in that culture is its rigorous sexual practice and its, and its demands for sexual purity in every respect from everyone. 
And I think you'd probably say the same thing about the list in verse eight, anger, wrath, and malice. I mean, these are, these are vices in pagan culture too, but there are forms of anger and forms of wrath that are characteristic of certain kinds of, certain kinds of uh, heroic virtue. So uh, again, there's a, there's a, uh, a stark contrast between what characterizes the world around the early church and what the way of life of the church itself. And I think you could, uh, as we get into the positive side of this in verse 12, you can see it even more starkly where the things that the Christians are supposed to put on, the fruits that they're supposed to cultivate and, and the, the virtues that they're supposed to cultivate are virtues that either don't appear or appear as a, in a very subordinate place in the ethical thinking of, uh, of ancient pagans. And even ancient, ancient Jews don't put the same stress, for example, on love that uh, Paul does. One of the things that uh, we can draw from this is just the, it, I think it highlights the, the failure of the contemporary church to be what the New Testament teaches a church should be. You have the same levels or similar levels of use of pornography within the church as you do outside. You have similar levels of divorce. You have uh, Christians that engage in public protest with anger and wrath on the same level as their pagans. And, and James, you're talking about social media. You have you have Christians who take on take on a social media persona that is exhibiting the very things that Paul is prohibiting here. Gentleness is not a virtue on Twitter. That's not that's not what people. You don't gain followers by being gentle on Twitter. Uh, it's designed for combat. It's designed for wrath and anger. So I think that Paul is Paul is laying out um, these lists partly in order to show the starkness of the contrast between what's demanded of those who have died to the world and those who now live in the new world. Uh, and it's a lesson that is perennial, of course, but I think particularly in our day, we need to we need to reemphasize and cultivate these very things that Paul's talking about. I do think it's worth reflecting upon the way in which Paul is not just calling them to a sort of heroic morality where they need to um, gird up their ethical loins and just deal with these issues. I mean, there is an aspect of that to it. But when we think about the natural consequences of putting our mind upon Christ, about thinking about ourselves by faith and no longer thinking about ourselves purely by sight, many of these things follow as a result of that. And so the way that we pursue these virtues is not directly in the way that certain pagan forms of virtue might suggest, but in that indirect way, the sort of way that Thomas Chalmers and others have spoken about the expulsive power of a new affection, that as we set our minds upon Christ, we'll find that we just do not get as angry as we once did. We do not find ourselves engaging in the same sort of obscene talk, and we find that our thoughts once occupied with impure things, are now occupied with Christ and with things that are above. And the idolatry of putting things, not least the pride of our own selves, before God, ends up just shriveling away when something else worthy of our full attention takes its place. And so the more that we find that Christ is in the centre of our lives, the more that these things will no longer be problems for us in the ways that they once were. We'll still struggle with them, but they won't be the dominating, the um, determining features of our lives and our, our identity that they were in the past. Yeah, that's a great point, Alistair, because you know, it'd be easy to turn the, the virtue and vice list into just another set of rules or uh, as the basis for another set of 
ascetic practices, the kinds of things, again, that Paul is condemning at the end of chapter two, which he says are of no value against fleshly indulgence. What is value against fleshly indulgence is, as you say, uh, seeking Christ above, who is seated at the right hand of God, keeping our minds set on things above, not on things of the earth. It's not the um, rigorous practices of self-control, but it's the focus on Christ that that is the transformative power. It may also be worth um, just thinking about how these fit into the broader trajectory of, of the book. I mean, these um, uh, vices in chapter, uh, sorry, in verse eight, um, I made the point previously that they they tend to um, drive people apart and, and cause division. Um, and yet the um, the virtues in verse 12 onwards are completely the opposite. They're, they're the kind of thing that draw people together. And there's the uh, language used, I can't find it exactly, um, in verse 14, which binds everything together in, in harmony. Love and forgiveness um, do that. And of course, this is sort of building on precisely how Christ is introduced to us and what his mission is said to be in the first chapter. So he's the one um, uh, in whom all things hold together. Um, and it's his particular mission, uh, God uh, is working through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in on heaven, uh, on earth or in heaven, uh, making peace by the blood of the cross. And, and so that theme of um, reconciliation seems to be now um, something that the church is um, exhorted to act in, a, in a, such a way as to bring about. Um, so there's that kind of um, way in which we're embodied in Christ's own mission as a church. It's also important to notice that uh, what Paul's describing here is not uh, a lone believer putting off the evil desires and the anger and malice of the old man and putting on the virtues of the new, but um, the renewal that's taking place, the renewal of the image of God that's taking place is a renewal that is communal, it's corporate, uh, and it's a renewal that restores men from every, use the, uh, the language of the Book of Common Prayer, uh, every sort and condition of men, as verse 11 is stressing, uh, we're being renewed according to the image of the one who created him, we're being renewed in the image of God, being made fully human, and uh, not just restored, but glorified as humans. And that is true whether you're Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. No matter what your social status, no matter what your religious background, Paul, of course, in Galatians includes male and female there, no matter whether you're a man or a woman, that restoration is happening through Christ. And it's not just restoration of each individual to the image of God, but there's a kind of corporate reality of the image of God, such that... um, that body made up of those people from diverse backgrounds, that body which is restored to the image of God is Christ. Christ is all, Paul says. I think, I think the, uh, it's the same language as 1 Corinthians 12, uh, where he says, uh, your body has, is one body yet has many members, so also is Christ. Christ is the body with many members. Uh, Christ is sometimes identified as the head of the body, but Paul can also speak of Christ as the whole body, head, and members. Uh, And Christ is in all. Christ is in all as the hope of glory, as Paul says uh, earlier in Colossians. Christ is in all as our life. So no no matter who you're looking at within the church, no matter where they've come from or what their, you know, what their background is, what their their, uh, pigmentation is, what their social status is, Christ is in them, and Christ is expressed and reflected in that.
in that whole, in that, in that body. So there's a, again, there's a, what Christ aims at and what God aims at in Christ is not just restoration of individuals uh, in the image of God, but the restoration of a company of people, a community of people who reflect that image in their life together as a people. And that emphasis upon Christ that you've brought across there, I think just carries through what's been going on throughout the epistle, the emphasis in the great Christ hymn that we have in verses 15 to 20 of chapter one, or we can think about the way that Christ is represented as the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the desire that everyone grow up into the maturity of Christ, the fact that their reception of the gospel is the reception of Christ, and the way that the substance is described as belonging to Christ, their lives are described as being in Christ, and Christ is their life. And so the statement here that within this new man, Christ is all in, is all and in all, is entirely in keeping with the whole thrust of his message, that this is an understanding of the Christian faith for which Christ can't just be off on the side, or Christ can't just be one who's a great teacher, Christ can't merely be one who's assisting us or affecting our salvation that we then can pursue on other grounds. Christ is at every single stage, the firstborn, the preeminent, the beginning, the one who's the end and telos of all, and everything is held together within him. And when you begin to see that, you begin to see also the way in which the individual um, virtues and vices and then the corporate virtues and vices hang together. You can think about this also in the context of places like Galatians chapter 5 and the the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit and the way in which the evident works of the flesh lead to people biting and devouring each other. And although expressed on an individual level, initially, we can see the way that they produce a certain sort of society, which is constantly defined by dissensions and rivalries and antagonisms. And yet in Christ, there's this new principle of life by the spirit in which these disparate groups can be brought together as one. And this, it seems to me, is an understanding that only makes sense with a presentation of the gospel for which Christ is as central as he is within Paul's understanding. Yeah, just to reinforce that, I think that's uh, that's the logic behind what Paul goes on to say in verse 12. He addresses the Colossians as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, all of which are terms that uh, the New Testament applies to Jesus. Jesus is the chosen one. He's the Holy One of God. He's the beloved Son. And Paul can address the Colossians as that uh, in that way because they are in Christ and they share in Christ's status. They share in Christ's election. Jesus is the elect one. We are elect in him. Jesus is the Holy One. We're holy. We belong to God in him. Uh, We're beloved in him. And the the same kind of logic is continuing as we go into the the corresponding list of virtues in verse 12, all of which are virtues that Jesus exhibits. Some overlap here with what uh, Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes, uh, but that overlap is rooted in the fact that Christ is the one who exhibits all of the virtues of the Beatitudes. He's the one who has the, it says, heart of compassion by New American Standard really should be more like guts of compassion, the intestines of compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. That's a description of Jesus. And because we are in Jesus as the chosen, holy, and beloved, therefore we are to put on Christ. 
Uh, and specifically, putting on Christ means we put on these virtues and we live according to this, this pattern of life. This becomes our this becomes our clothing, not just our clothing that we're supposed to be, as we once embodied and incarnated the vices in our very the members of our bodies. Uh, so we're to incarnate and embody these these virtues and uh, blessings and gifts of the Spirit in our bodies. I'm curious whether any of you have any thoughts on verse 11 and the way that Paul, when he often gives these sorts of statements of unity in Christ, and I think it's helpful to think about this primarily in terms of unity, not just equality, which is the first category that tends to leap to modern minds. Why, in contrast to the sorts of binaries that he usually gives, slave and free, male and female, Jew and Gentile, does he have a more developed sort of taxonomy here, Greek and Jew, barbarian, Scythian, what are those categories doing for Paul? Yeah, that, that is an interesting uh, divergence from what Paul usually does. The, 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 first, the first couple of pairs are contrasting pairs, Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised that are separated by and. And then you just have, as you say, the list of four different categories without any, that's no particular binary, the slave and free uh, is more the binary that, uh, that Paul talks about. So this this is slightly different from what Paul does. One of the ways to read read Paul, I think it's I can think of, who is the guy that does the uh, apocalyptic antinomies? Martin. Yeah, uh, is that right? J. Lewis Martin. Yes. Yeah. So J. Lewis Martin talks about uh, the old world as a world that's organized around these antinomies and these binaries, and that when Paul describes what's characteristic of the new world, it's the overcoming of these binaries. Um, and that that works with some of these in Colossians 3.11. It works in uh, Galatians 3 with the binaries that Paul's talking there. And I think there's there's something to that, something to Martin's claim there. But yeah, uh, Alistair is right that this, it's not set up the same way. Barthian, uh, I'm sorry, Barthian, Barthian and Scythian, that's not what I meant to say. Barbarian and Scythian uh, don't, uh, don't form the same pair. They would be Together on one side of a contrast, uh, the the correspondence would probably be Hellenist or Greek. So um, I'm just restating the question and expanding on the question, Alistair. I don't really have a, I don't really have an answer to it. No, I don't have a particular answer. I mean, I I've, I toyed with the idea of whether it's a list that is deliberately um, not meant to stress the differences um, too much, or, or to give the impression that the church can just neatly be sort of cut up into distinct groups or something like that um but i'm not sure that's hugely enlightening um the only thing that kind of appealed to me about it is that it feels that um paul here is particularly focusing on um intra-church behavior so paul does have all sorts of things that he says about how we're to behave to people um outside the church and, and what sort of um, uh, attitude we're, we're meant to portray and, and so on. Um, but here, there, there is it is very much sort of intra-church things. And so um, initially in verse 9, it's do not lie to one another. Um, and then in, uh, in verse 12 and 13, it's bearing with one another. And um, it, it does seem that Paul's focus is, is particular on, on how we conduct ourselves um, w- within the body. Another thing here is the reference to being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
it brings into play the concept of the image of God for most readers at this point. And the question is, how do we understand this in light of the concept of the image of God as we encounter it first in Genesis chapter one and elsewhere? What does it mean for the image of God to be renewed in knowledge? We don't generally think, um, particularly um, modern readers don't primarily think of knowledge as a feature of the image of God. We think of it in terms of dominion or something like that. But it seems that there's some understanding of the image of God that finds its primary focus in Christ. Christ is the one who is the image of God, as we saw back in chapter one. But he's also the one in whom the image of God for humanity more generally is renewed and it has its true character. And that that knowledge, I wonder what we're supposed to see this as being in reference to. Is it a reference to our knowledge of God? Is it a reference to the knowledge of the mystery or something else? I'll be curious to hear your thoughts on it. I think it's pretty decisive evidence that Paul is a Thomist who thinks that the image of God does consist in, in knowledge. So uh, that, w- that would be one, one way to answer the question. But uh, just, uh, uh, just to fill out the question initially, so it's a, it's a theme of N.T. Wright's commentary in Colossians that Paul is emphasizing knowledge as the uh, avenue by which we come into fellowship with God and by which we are uh, producing all the fruit. Uh, Colossians 1.9, for example, Paul says, for this reason, since the day that we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with all knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And that's just one of a number of places where Paul explicitly talks about knowledge and understanding as a, a crucial part of um, a part of what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus. So um, Wright is often, uh, Wright often goes on to emphasize that this knowledge isn't simply factual knowledge. It's not just knowledge that Jesus existed or that he rose from the dead, but it has this fuller connotation of uh, personal knowledge that involves a personal encounter. Um, But that doesn't minimize the the fact that it's an act of understanding. Um, That uh, the the role in uh, one of the ways to read verse 10, which is what Alistair raised, is that, that knowledge is a means by which we come to be restored to the image of God, uh, in knowing God, in knowing Christ, in setting our minds. That's another of Paul's uses of uh, uh, categories of intellection, setting our minds on things above. Uh, as we talk, we've talked about before, setting our minds on things above means that we are of communion with Christ. And that is one of the means by which we are able to overcome and destroy, kill the vices that plague us and put on the virtues of the spirit. So knowledge at least is a means, but it seems like uh, here the knowledge is a an end. Verse 10, I think it's ace, we're renewed unto a true knowledge according to the image. So there's a uh, perhaps a reference to the knowledge of tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, we're, we're back in the realm of Genesis by reference to the image of the one who created us, and that we're being renewed toward a true knowledge, toward a, a fulfillment of that image. In uh, in reception of the of the knowledge that would come that was symbolized in the garden by the knowledge of good and evil, that would be one possible way of reading it. Encountering the um, image of God here, I think, is a reminder, as in 
chapter one, that we might think that we have these doctrines nailed down from the Old Testament, and then we come to the New Testament, and then we have the revelation of Christ, and that adds certain things to our body of doctrine, but doesn't actually fundamentally change the things that were already settled back in the Old Testament. But yet what we see, I think, here and elsewhere is this encouragement to reread those things that we're already familiar with in terms of Christ. So the image of God is understood in a far fuller sense when we understand that Christ is the true image of God, that Christ is the one in whom humanity reaches its telos and creation likewise, when we recognize that Christ is the one through whom all things were made and for whom all things were made. And bringing those pieces of knowledge back into the Old Testament, we don't read those texts in the same way again. You can't think about the first Adam as you once did um, if you have a knowledge of the second Adam or the last Adam, rather, or the second man. And here, that contrast between the old man and the new man is something that really invites us, I think, to go back and to reconsider some of the ways that we've been reading the Old Testament and to place Christ once more at the very centre of it. Yeah, and, and surely this idea of being renewed by knowledge is very different from the um, uh, the commands at the end of chapter two, which have no um, power to sort of stem the indulgence of the flesh. I, I, I'm not gaining in knowledge just by told don't do that, don't touch that, etc. You know, I, I already know that those things are uh, wrong to do. Um, and being renewed in knowledge is quite different from that. I mean, one of the, this, is, this is not a, an exposition of Paul's thought necessarily, but one of the things that this highlights, I think, is the, uh, you know, the, the genuine wonder of uh, our capacity for knowing things and the, the, the uh, centrality of that in human experience. The fact that we are, Aristotle says, we're, we're, created, we're, we're animals that have a desire to know everything. Human beings have a particular desire to know, to explore and to discover and to figure out how things work. And uh, we can see that there's, it's implied certainly by what Genesis 1 says about the image of God, what uh, the task is given to Adam in the garden. Uh, in order to name the animals, he has to he has to engage in a process of exploration, uh, in a quest for knowledge. In order to have dominion over the earth, that that requires a certain kind of knowledge. So again, I don't I, I think it's uh, I'm not trying to import this into Colossians three, but um, I'm just making the basically very simple point that we shouldn't minimize the splendor of human knowledge and the fact that that does in fact. Uh, that is an aspect of the image of God, the, the, the fact that we have a capacity to know and to organize knowledge and to articulate knowledge and to communicate knowledge, passing on knowledge from one person to another. That is, a, that is an aspect of the image of God and it's one of the wonders of human existence. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. 
That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm